0: You can't beat somebody at their own trade. So there's plenty of like the DIY guys that that's like their passion. Like, yeah, they're fill in the blank vocation or profession, but their passion is dog training. Mine wasn't. Mine was, I wanted to go adventure and do stuff with my dog. So it was very, uh, it was very worth it for me to, for a couple of months, send him down to this guy. And he came back and this dog was just lights out. He was so phenomenal. It was so fun. And then that brought so much more like drive. Cause now it's like, this dog is so dialed in and so good. Like, let's go do everything. Let's go try every new type of thing that we can.
1: All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. I have a first-time guest this week. We have Ben Proctor of B-Pro Kennels. Ben, how you doing, bud? Good. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So we are... I gotta, gotta be honest, this is probably the most, like, rugged... Uh, path towards uh, a podcast studio that you brought me to that yep. you know we we said that we wanted to kind of come record this and test out the battery bank of the new kennel system out here on the mountains and uh, you put that put that request to the test i i guess i should say yeah just sitting in a walmart parking lot <laughs> yeah yeah that's a this resembles nothing like a Walmart, but yeah. So for for the listeners to kind of clue them in, what's going on is I'm here uh, in Utah picking up the new uh, gun dog box that you built me, which is awesome. And we we're gonna do a podcast, and instead of being boring about it and recording in your shop or or house or something, we're like, you know what? Let's uh, let's go remote and go out in the middle of nowhere. And then uh, you decided to have us climb a mountain in our trucks before we pulled over.
0: Yeah, a little trail ride and <laughs> running all the electro- electronics off the off the battery bank from the from the dog box. So kind of fun.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously putting it through its paces for what it's going to be used for. You know, hopefully quite a bit. But uh, of course, we're going to get to the box and what makes everything unique and and special and and really what what brought you to even wanting to start building gun dog boxes. But before we get to that. I want to get to know you a little bit better get what kind of where were you born and raised and what kind of brought you into the upland space overall so born and raised here in orem
0: utah Um, lived here my whole life outside of two years that i lived in texas but my wife and i uh, we bought my childhood home from my parents uh, a number of years ago and uh, been slowly remodeling that but yeah born and raised here in utah led just a pretty normal average, uh, life, just getting into trouble as kids and teenagers and whatnot. And then, uh, the year that we got married, we bought our first dog. Um, he's our, he's our old male that we still have today. And, uh, that's kind of the, the beginning of the, the addiction, I guess, if you will.
1: Yeah, so you didn't grow up with dogs or upland hunting. It, you Pretty much when you got married is when you got your first dog. What made you want to get into it?
0: Yeah, so I mean, growing up, we had a Cocker Spaniel, and she was a sweetheart, but she never we never hunted with her or anything like that. So um, she was a fun dog growing up. Um, but yeah, our first dog was the year that we got married, and um, I always knew that I wanted dogs. And uh, I didn't really know exactly what breed or what I wanted to do with it, but I had been bird hunting with friends and their families in the past. And so getting a dog, it was like, well, let's get a dog that does something, right? You know, no <laughs> yeah. offense to if you just want a dog as a pet, that's great. But it was like, this is this could be really cool. I don't think you're going to offend <laughs> yeah, any of my listeners with that statement. <laughs> but uh, it was like, let's get a dog that uh, that hunts birds because that sounds great and that sounds fun. And before you know it, it's like, this is this is what we want to do. This is
1: the, the bug bitchy like it bites everybody pretty much. Yeah, so t- talk to me. What was it like? You decide I want a dog that I get to go do something with. You live out in Utah and it's surprising kind of I've never been to Utah. This is my first time coming through. You know, I just left Colorado, which was cool, hunting the mountains and everything. then you come out here in Utah and I'm surrounded by more mountains and then getting to talk to you. There there seems to be a lot more upland opportunities than what I think the average person might assume or know about here in Utah. And, you know, what was it like getting your first dog in Utah? And what, what did you kind of cut your teeth in on? What did you start learning
0: on? So I did just an extensive amount of research about what kind of dog I was going to get. And by that, I mean, I looked on the, on the classifieds and I picked the first dog breed <laughs> that looked good and drove 30 minutes to pick it up and didn't know anything that I was looking for. But I was like, yep, that one, that one looks great. Let's get that. And then uh, getting into birds, I really was like super ignorant. It was like all I thought of was pheasants. And Utah, it's a really, really poor um, wild pheasant population. So a lot of it was uh, going out to like pheasant preserves and pheasant farms and things like that. And um, tons and tons of fun, um, especially as you're getting into it. Uh, That's a great avenue to like figure out your gear and you know how the dogs work and you know kind of cut your teeth that way and uh it wasn't till one of my friends um his name is Nick that uh, he's like let's try chasing grouse up in the mountains and at first it was like oh my gosh that sounds so boring like what like <laughs> the mountains are for deer and elk and like birds like oh my gosh sounds so boring but then
1: uh well hold up what 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 about it sounded boring I don't to know you? It, was it just, just it, it, right it just it wasn't right with you
0: just it wasn't Pheasants. And when, when you're really new and all that you're familiar with is pheasants, it's like, is there other birds to chase? Is that like, is that even going to be fun? That sounds miserable to hike through the mountains. (laughs) Anyways, long story short, after like the first time you go out, you're like, okay, this is actually the funnest thing possible. Um, getting up here in the woods and walking through the timbers and the pines and aspens and hearing elk bugle and, you know, your dogs are working great and shooting birds. And it's like, man, this is, this is what it's all about. And then after a while, it's like, yeah, pheasants are fun, I guess.
1: (laughs) Well, and that that mirrors, I think, a lot of people's experience coming into the uplands. And I can't remember if it was, I was talking to you or some. I think I was talking to Jim in Colorado. It's like when people come into the uplands, for better or worse, like their first image or or thought that they're going to be chasing, getting into upland birds is either usually pheasants or maybe bobwhite quail. And then it's not like really until you get into the world of upland that you start realizing that there's a... A much wider variety of species and types of hunting that you can go chase and each species is like different in of itself brings something completely different and then i think that's something within the last like five to maybe ten years people are really starting to understand that like there's a there's a wide uh space out there that you can kind of fill and make it make your hunt your own, right? Like you don't have to be stuck with just pheasant or bobwhite quail. And if somebody listening to this now, this will offend some of my listeners if you're bashing (laughs) pheasant or bobwhite quail too much, but like, you know, that's not to say if you love them that you can't, you know, you don't, you you have to love all the other birds, but, but it's just like, that's what I particularly like doing is I'm, I'm trying to experience all of them before I kind of make up my mind on more or less what my, my specialty or my preferences.
0: And to that point, I think that was a huge eye opening because I just didn't know that there were other birds. I'd heard of like, you know, obviously people, you know, chase quail and stuff like that. That wasn't new to me, but like all the different grouse species and, you know, huns and chuckers and, you know, things like that, that really started to open your eyes. And to your, to your point, it was like, you can kind of chase what fits you personally. And, you know, if you really like chasing pheasants, then there's so many opportunities to go do that. And if you really like chasing chucker, there's so many opportunities to go do that. And, you know, then you start getting into the dog breeds and some of the breeds are more tailored genetically to do certain things better than others. And then it becomes fun to, okay, how do I extract all the potential out of this dog that is kind of tailored towards this bird or this species or this type of style of hunting? And, you know that was that was the really fun eye opening part was there's so much more to this than just pheasants and not that there's anything wrong with that but that was all that i knew or anticipated getting into it
1: And you kind of have to wrap your mind around it. Like you said, you know, that's when you got into it, that's what you thought Upland hunting was. And then just the suggestion, the, just the audacity of your buddy to suggest, (laughs) hey, let's go up on the mountains and try something different. And, you know, maybe, maybe these ditch parrots aren't the only thing worth chasing, right? And you're just like, that sounds so boring. And then you go try it and you're like, you know what? I actually kind of prefer this a lot more uh, than pheasants. What was it about the, the bluegrass I'm assuming that you're kind of talking about or were roughs mixed in? Uh, What? What was it about grouse hunting on the mountains that spoke to you once you actually gave it a shot? Honestly, it was it was the feeling of of like big game hunting. Like
0: you're up in the mountains, you're where the elk and the deer are, and the frequency at which you can do it. Um, like big game hunting is really fun, but you're you're really limited to like a couple weekends at the most, um, unless you're traveling all over. But um, You're really limited but with with birds i mean you can go for three or four months and uh you get way up in the mountains and you try all these new terrains and new trails and new mountains and new canyons and uh, you really kind of hone in on habitat and what the birds are what birds like to eat and where they like to be and uh it's just a totally different challenge and it's just fun being up in the mountains and quiet and i don't know it's it's just a good time
1: so the, the big game out here, you know, if you're interested in this, you know, again, this is kind of my first, like, foray into the actual, like, West-West. You know, I go Midwest, you know, the Dakotas, Montana, I've been there, but Utah and, and Colorado, like, to me, that's more of a Western swing, and this is kind of my first time out here. And from my understanding, the big game, uh, it's it's a little different than what we do, especially down in the South. It's like you have a lot of spot and stalk. So there is a little bit more movement from my understanding down here than what we do in the South, which, you know, usually, you know, us Bubbas, we just end up in a deer stand or something <laughs> like that. But uh, it, it's just a different world. But, you know, the, I've always talked about it, at least in, in the way of where I'm from. Big game kind of you go do it, but if you want to actually get out and move and see different country and different terrain and get some exercise, that's where the small game comes in. But to your point, you can come out here, and while you're moving around in the big game and stuff, you're still only limited to what's actually open and, I guess, tags. And and if you're wanting to stay, like, within home range or you got to go travel— and so you just found it easier to find enjoyment throughout the entire season by opening it up to small game as opposed to just limiting yourself to, you know, a couple weekends chasing, you know, fill in the blank big game.
0: Growing up as kids, we, we would go camping all the time, like all the, all the time. Every summer we were traveling to different national parks and, you know, camping and doing stuff like that. So once we got into bird hunting, it was like, hey, let's go try this canyon that I remember camping in when as a kid and it like opens up the entire state and you can go southern utah northern utah east west like all over the place and you don't have to leave your state and you can go to a new spot every single day or every single weekend and then not to mention then you can go out of state then you can go to idaho or colorado or the dakotas and you know do some of these bigger trips but i mean you could hunt utah your entire life and find new new locations every weekend so that's that's the fun part too
1: and, th- and that's really fascinating as somebody who's obviously is p- kind of plugged into the world as, as I am, at least in-, in dream hunts or trips or always kind of looking for that next adventure challenge. It's Utah doesn't really come up that much. And it's not like, you know, I'm not, we're not coming on here to try and blow it up and say, hey, come to Utah, but, you know, talking to you and and realizing just the wide scope of opportunities on different species and types of hunting here, you would think that it would be higher on people's radar, or you would hear about it a little bit more than what you do. It's like outside of hearing about, you know, Utah's season kind of extends a little further than a lot of other states, so they'll be open while other states are closed. Outside of that, you really don't hear too much about Utah. Yeah, we, we do
0: have a number of birds here, but we don't have like giant populations outside of like chucker and blue grouse and probably ruffs. Um, but we have like huns and sharpies and sage grouse, but like really small populations and really small areas of the state. And some of those are like a limited entry, like a big game tag almost that like a lottery system, you have to, you have to get a tag to go do a, do a sage grouse. Um, we have some quail here, but most of those are like Southern Utah.
1: So it's a wide variety, but you you really have to kind of know what you're after for each one, but you can you can still make it happen, but you might just be going to like one corner to the next chasing different versions. So I guess it's just a, a wide landscape that yes, the opportunities are there, but you're not going to be able to like set up home base and and hunt all the species like in one consolidated area.
0: Yeah, that'd be a little bit more tricky. It's, It's not quite like Idaho or Montana or even Colorado that is a lot more accessible and the species are a little bit more numerous and things like that. But
1: so talk to me. Your buddy finally gets you up on the mountain. He get he gets you off your looking down your nose and calling you know the grouse species boring comparative to the uh, to the pheasant. What was it like learning that? You said that you know you're still new. You're still on your first dog, and and it sounds like you went out there and immediately fell in love with it. But what was it like figuring it out for the first time? Well,
0: I think we're still like we're still figuring it out. Every time we go, it's like okay, we didn't see something here. Why? And then, okay, we got success here. and This is a new spot. What was different about this? Um, Was it, you know, the trees? Was it the food? Was it, you know, was there a spring nearby? Um, So that, that challenge, that whole aspect of just trying to figure out and hone in on habitat, that's really fun. Um, You can get on on x and like try to figure out good spots and you drive up there and you get there and you're like oh this is this is clearly not a great spot or you can get on there and like well you know let's let's roll the dice let's go check out this spot and you know it turns out to be awesome so there's that part of it but the other part is it's pretty it's pretty gnarly hunting like through these trees you get a bird that gets up and starts flying and most of them fly downhill because it's easier for them so they just start gliding down And so you have these, this thick timber and you're on a slope of the hill or the mountain. So you have these little windows between the trees and you you get a glimpse of the bird and you hope that it's going to be, you know, 60 feet to the right where that next window is that you have an opening for. And, you know, you try to time it and shoot right there and you try to get the bird. And so there's that whole aspect of it too, where it's just, it's just kind of just stupid fun. It's just...
1: Well, so what stands out to you, you know, you it sounds like everybody else, you know, that's how you figure things out. It's, you can read all the books, you can watch all the videos, you can listen to all the podcasts, but I, I say this all the time, like you still have to go. There is no substitution for putting boots on the ground and going to figure it out. And part of that is embracing the suck of losing sometimes. You're going to go out there, you're going to get skunk sometimes. But if you're always asking, why are the birds not here? Then you compare that and overlay that when you do come across birds. To your point, you start piecing together the puzzle. So like, what are some of the things that stands out to you now looking back on it that it started making sense to you? Like, oh, this is what we're looking for in birds. You know, put yourself in the newbie shoe. They're trying to figure it out. What? What's some of the things that click for you early on? The big one was what side of the mountain you were hunting.
0: Was it east face, west face, north face, and then looking for water and looking for the tree line breaks and looking for where the pines and the aspens kind of collide. Just looking for different um, food sources, right? Like birds have to eat, they have to drink, you know, where if you drive to a spot and there's no water, it's, is there a chance that birds are going to be here? Probably, but also potentially not because they have to have water. So, you know, just trying to, Hone in on some of that stuff. And three or four years ago, I started journaling. And at first, it was really rudimentary. It was like, we went to this spot, we got this many birds, you know, we hiked this far. And uh, every year, I start to add more and more pieces to it. Like, okay, we were hunting this side of the face. We, you know, we were at this elevation. Um, this is the terrain that we were in. This is the habitat that we were in. This is the, you know, the food source. Like you'd you'd cut open their, the bird and you'd see what they were eating. Okay, this is what they were eating at this time of the year. And, you know, I haven't gone down into like temperature and time of day or anything like that, but that's been a great resource too to just kind of thumb back through and say, okay, well, if I'm going to go try out this spot, it was near this spot that we hunted last year. You know, it's within a couple of weeks of where I, when I hunted it last year, you know, this is what I saw. Uh, okay, this is what, this is, if we're going to this new spot, this is what we're going to try to look for because it's fairly close to this other spot.
1: The journaling is something when I first got into it, I did a much better job earlier on. I don't know if it's because I was so adamant about trying to find the cheat code, so to speak, trying to piece it together and and get that puzzle. And it's something that I kind of fell out of practice with in the past two or three seasons, especially, you know, you start adding in, you know, taking cameras and GoPros and all this other junk. It's just like, before too long you have such a high workload it's like journaling it's just like ah that whatever
0: takes the fun out of just going out and yeah, hunting yeah
1: it, it really does and it's one of those this season I've kind of made a vow to try and get back into it because I found myself especially last season to where I hunted the most I've ever hunted last season learned the most I ever learned because I hunted the most Co- going into this season I was trying to remember some of the key lessons that I learned last year and I I found myself lacking on some of the primary details that I just assumed would always stick in my head. And then going into this season, trying to map scout and stuff like that, I'm like, I can't remember if this was up or down, left or right. And it's like, this is where a journal would come in handy to where you can go back and look at your notes and just resource those. And that's something like, to your point, if you go into it and you have 50 pieces of information you're trying to log on every single hunt, chances of you sticking with that are pretty slim. But if you pick the two or three, you get used to that, then the next season, add another detail or two, and then the next season and and like that. So do you find yourself every season kind of resorting back to checking that journal, just kind of refresh your, your memory and get yourself in the right frame of mind?
0: Yes and no. Um, oftentimes, you know, it's... It's purely like hey we're just going to go try a new spot and we don't really care it's just like a an itch we got to scratch like we're going to go try this canyon and you know we're just going to go wing it um but more than anything, it's just documenting it sometimes. Just the just the muscle of writing it down helps log it into your brain. And you do enough of it, and you're like, okay, this side of the mountain seems to always get birds. And then before you know it, you don't really need to reference or write it down, but it's just muscle memory.
1: You just remember I wrote down south-facing slope a heck of a lot more than I wrote <laughs> yep. down north-facing yep. slope. <laughs> Little
0: things like that. And then I think over time, I, I don't know if I'll keep it up forever, um, but we're where I'm still just trying to absorb everything. And it is it is handy to just write stuff down. And there's people that have been hunting their whole life and like their dad took them bird hunting or big game hunting and stuff like that. And a lot of that's just been taught to them. And uh, so a lot of it's just trying to play catch up, I guess.
1: So as far as the mountain slopes and, and, and we'll kind of move on from here, but I'm curious to your observations from the journaling. What have you picked up on the common threads of which facing slope you're hunting on? Like, talk to me about throughout the season, if there's a difference, throughout the day, conditions, what have you, you know, what's the difference between your east-facing slope, your west, and so on? I'd be more than welcome to have
0: people come back and tell us one way or the other, but um, in previous hunts, it's usually north face is where the birds are, um, and, you know, obviously you can't get them perfectly north every single time, but as long as they're north-facing, you know, whether it's northeast or northwest, um, that's generally where, where you'll find the birds the most. Um, not to say you can't find them south-facing, but those ones are usually more of like the one-off, you know, one bird gets up and, and you shoot it and stuff like that. But north-facing is, as you're hiking, it's like, okay, yeah, we saw 20 birds today and they were all north-facing.
1: Really? That's interesting. I mean, do you have any theories as to why that is? Not really, really.
0: Um, probably most of it has to do with the sun and, and getting shade and things like that.
1: Because it, it it holds up to last week in Colorado hunting, you know, all the blue grouse that we got up, northeast-ish facing slope. I'm not going to say it was dead on the money, but it was around northeast-facing fl- slopes that we were kicking out our birds. And I would think that it's most
0: to do with shade, but I could be completely wrong. The other thing that we found quite a bit is if you can find springs that like big game would, would frequent. Like that's where like a common known water hole is for elk or deer or whatever, bear, or whatever. They like to hang out.
1: The same side of the mountain I'm thinking about. Within a radius buddy Jim of found that. My four sheds on the last walk, two of which was the matching elk set, set that I showed you. So oh, there you go, big cool. game. And I mean, and, and we kicked up some mule deer on that side of the mountain too. Again, you know, this is, it could just be coincidence, but... Yeah, and I don't know one way or the other, but... But if it starts forming a pattern, you know, it, it take note of it. Now, I, we're not saying, anybody listening to this, don't go walk that south-facing slope because there's no right. birds there. It could also change on which region you're in, your prevailing winds, you know, the time of year, how much sun versus shade, you, you, you know, you're, you're just overall climate, you know, it, all that stuff could go into it. So what, we're t- what you're talking about in Utah and what I'm referencing in Colorado could be completely different than on the East Coast.
0: For sure. Yeah. I don't have enough data to back up anything other than just my own stupidity of this is <laughs> kind of what's worked for me.
1: So back to the dogs, you, you just go to the trusty classifieds. You do what a lot of people do on their first dogs. It's like, I want a dog. So you go get a dog, right? You don't spend that much time doing the homework. So how did the classified dog work out for you? What, was it a big pain? What, talk to me, learning curves as you know pros and cons to it. Yeah, so I think we took the path
0: of a lot of people where your first dog is kind of like your first baby and like he was an inside dog and he was pampered and like we did everything. And, um, obviously once we have kids and stuff like that, it's, he has to kind of take his, his spot in the totem pole now. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, we took him out with like almost no training. Like I'm an idiot. I don't know the first thing about dog training. I just was like, let's just go see what he does. So we took him out to a pheasant farm and he locked up on point and it was like, Oh, this is. This is so easy. Like, just go get a dog. <laughs> I'm that's... The
1: best trainer in the world. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, like the mentality of my daughter. When this morning she was telling you that she's a she's a pro dog trainer. She's oh no five. no no
1: expert oh, yeah, dog yeah. trainer. She said that within the first five minutes of me getting here yesterday. Is hi. I'm Quinn. I'm an expert dog trainer. Yes. <laughs> and then today yeah. I think she called herself a super expert dog trainer.
0: <laughs> and she is. She she'll put the dogs in their place pretty quick. But uh, no, it, it, it was a fun learning curve of like, right off the bat, you're like, dude, this is so easy. Go get a bird dog. Like they're <laughs> right. They're, they're just made for this. It's so easy. And then you try to start getting some obedience and like trying to hone in their skill. And you're like, okay, this is actually like a challenge and this is fun. And I, I didn't do all the main training. I actually sent my dog out to a gentleman in just south of here. It's called Utah Bird Dog Training. He's a, he's a good friend of mine, but he does phenomenal, phenomenal work. And uh, my theory was this dog has so much potential and not that I couldn't or shouldn't learn how to extract that, that potential out of him, but um, there's a saying in the trades, like carpentry and plumbing and stuff like that, that uh, you can't beat somebody at their own trade. So there's plenty of like the DIY guys that that's like their passion. Like, yeah, they're fill in the blank vocation or profession, but their passion is dog training. And uh, mine wasn't. Mine was, I wanted to go adventure and do stuff with my dog. So it was very, uh, it was very worth it for me to, for a couple of months, send him down to this guy and he came back and this dog was just lights out. He was so phenomenal. It was so fun. And then that brought so much more like drive because now it's like this dog is so dialed in and so good. Like, let's go do everything. Let's go try every new type of thing that we can. And uh, so yeah, that, that was kind of our journey with training and that's still kind of how we do it today. And um, just being around dogs, you start to pick up on stuff and you become a better dog owner. And uh, I compare it to like an ax. Like I can keep the edge sharp, but, uh, but this guy is so much better about doing the initial grind of the of the bevel if you will for the axe
1: and you raise a couple very important uh, points throughout that you know people assume this is gun yourself obviously for four plus years now I've been doing topics and and guests all central around people training and living with their bird dogs and so they automatically assume I'm I'm down on pro trainers right like it's like I, I'm a huge advocate for people training their own dogs I think I I truly think that if if somebody really wants to do it and they can be focused and have a little bit of humility and learn to say they don't know what they don't know, I think everybody's capable of training their own dog. Now, it's going to come natural to some people as opposed to others, but I also tell everybody, first and foremost, your responsibility is to that dog. And what you're just describing is how do I get the most out of the potential? Could you have done it? Yes, you could have. But just your, your lifestyle, your priorities, what you're interested in doing with the dog, you found it, it made more sense to outsource that to somebody that already knew that. And that is very often a wise decision for certain people. Instead of banging your head against the wall, maybe ha- doing a, a a poor job because you're not really into it. Maybe finding that pro trainer to do that is the right way to gun dog it yourself your way, right? And and you, some people have bad experiences going to a pro trainer. You just gave a very good experience of doing a pro trainer. But pro trainers are only valuable if the owners realize what you just said. I have to keep the edge sharp. If you send a dog off to a pro trainer, they put all this time, work, and resources into the dog, and you get it back. And you go hunt it that first season and then it sits on the couch until the next season. That dog just regressed to the next season. It's just like us. You still have to stay on top of it. So even if you send off to a pro trainer, it you still have to do your due diligence and your part in keeping that dog fresh. But to your point, you, that doesn't mean you have to go teaching the dog everything. You just have to keep them churched up. Right. Exactly. And that's, that for
0: me is way more doable and way more enjoyable where like the first time we got Otto back from, from his name's Tice. The first time we got the dog back from Tice, Tice went through a whole thing. Like we spent hours together. This is how you do this. This is how you do this. This is, you know, if, if your dog does this, you need to discipline, like you need to make sure that he, that's not okay. That's not what we taught him, you know? And, uh, it was way more enjoyable to take something that was already sharp and keep it sharp Because, I mean, that means we can go up in the mountains, like we can go hike, we can go do all this fun stuff. And I didn't have to, like you said, pound my head against the wall because the chances of me figuring it out or getting him to the level that Tice got him at in such a short time, you know, it it could be years before I got him to that same level. You know, we don't have a ton of time with our dogs, especially the prime time when, you know, that four or five, six year old Mark where they're just, just beasts. It could take you a long time to get your dog to even be remotely Tuned up. At least for me, it would have.
1: Well, not even just time. Sometimes it takes multiple dogs. You know, it's like I think everybody listening to this, if they train their own dogs, will tell you the first dog they do it, it's kind of like, sorry, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you, 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 I was learning on you. You were my guinea pig, and then every dog. It since then. You naturally get better and better and you kind of learn the shorthand, so to speak. But it goes back to your previous point on the trades, like, you know, the, the people that know their trade and know their job, you're not going to beat somebody at their own trade. And if you're training your own dog, you're kind of learning a new trade. I mean, people do that professionally for a living. It is a trade. It is a skill to develop. And so, you can be the most motivated person, and you're still going to make a lot of mistakes. Even the pro trainers will tell you their their biggest uh, lessons or value that they've had in their journey was the screw-ups along the way and learning by those mistakes. It just so happens that if you're training your own dog, you're making that mistake on your own dog. And, you know, the, the first dog, two or three, can suffer a lot of times, and you may not reach that full potential, and you just have to decide for yourself, is it worth – the effort or not, and some people may not have that luxury of even deciding, they may not have a choice financially, they may not be in a position to send it off to a pro trainer, but either way, you know, I say all this to say that like sometimes given your situation and your interest in this, this sport, it's like sometimes sending it off to a pro trainer may not be the worst decision in the world.
0: And I do, I have that itch that I need to scratch of. I do want to train a dog, like start to finish, get it finished and like see what we can do. Um, but realistically that's not in the cards at least for a while.
1: Well, you have Quinn, your daughter, she's the dog trainer now, right?
0: That is true. I do just need to figure out how much it costs and, you know, we'll, we'll send it to her and see what she can make of it.
1: Well, while she's developing her trade, your trade by day is welding fabrication, right? So how did you kind of fall into that world? And then I want to steer that into where did this, you know, brainchild of an idea come from to start constructing and building your own gun dog boxes?
0: Yeah. So I got into the welding because I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor. <laughs> Just kidding. but really i have three older brothers and they're all doctors so i'm definitely the the dummy the dummy runt of the family but
1: how often do they come to you versus you going to them for favors
0: oh it's it's not even close i go to them for favors way more <laughs>
1: okay <laughs> well I, th- I thought it was gonna be yeah. the other way around like no. hey bro can you uh weld this up for me
0: <laughs> yeah that does happen fairly often but when uh, when I was like 20 or something like that, I was doing a bunch of yard work and I was using a trimmer and just wasn't thinking I'd cut the whole tip of my finger off and had to call my brother. Like, hey, what are you? Uh, what are you doing right now? You want to <laughs> stitch my finger back
1: together? <laughs> I thought you were gonna say, "And there went my surgery career." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, but no, honestly, I, I really did enjoy working with my hands. Uh, going through high school, I always gravitated towards like metal shop or wood shop. Um, heck, I even like in junior high we had um, like sewing classes. Like, I really enjoyed anything that was hands on that like you could create stuff that you could take raw goods, raw material and turn it into something um so i uh, i went to a tech college and i uh, went through their course their welding program and uh, i was pretty motivated I, I flew through that program and uh then after right after that i started getting jobs working for other companies and uh, i was still really motivated it's so, like anytime they would offer um like i remember one of my old jobs um it was just me and a couple guys and we all knew how to do it's called mig welding it's basically like like regular carbon steel like regular you know, just generic steel. And, um, they were developing this box, this little like camera housing, and it was going to be made out of aluminum and none of us knew how to weld aluminum. So they were going to outsource it. And I remember telling my boss, like, no, I, I will figure this out. I want to, I want to learn how to do this. So like weekends after hours, I would go buy material out of my own pocket. And then we'd go into the shop after hours, weekends, and uh, I would use this machine and I would just practice and practice and practice and practice until finally my boss was like, okay, yeah, we're, we're not going to outsource this. We'll, we'll steer all the aluminum work to you. And, uh, I loved it. I mean, that's, it was so fun to come into work and you just have this palette of parts and you just put your headphones in and just go to work and you just start welding and you'd weld for hours and hours and hours. And, uh, to kind of make a parallel to dog training and stuff like that, it's it's all what they call hood time, right? How long is your hood down and how long are you welding? And that's how you get good at welding. So everybody comes up and asks, you know, is aluminum hard to weld or is stainless steel hard to weld? And the answer is like, yes and no. Like it's it's no longer that difficult to me because I've put so much hood time into it that I can problem solve if the material's acting kind of funny. I know how to tune the machine and get the results that I want. But yeah, that was kind of the the origin, the conception of, yeah, origin story of getting into the trades, if you will.
1: Again, an, another good point. You know, a skill is a skill, whether it's dog training or welding. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I did industrial construction during the day when I was going to school at night. And I mean, it was one of those guys, like, my welding was atrocious. It, it would it would hold, but it was it, nobody nobody's gonna be like, man, that that's a craftsman right there. But to your point, the people that stay behind and and they just drop that hood, and you know they're tigging and and they're walking the dog on the stainless, and it's just like they come away, and it's just like it is kind of a work of art with the people that really know how to do it. But it's still like everything else; you really have to just spend the time doing it. And I just find it fascinating when talking to people such as yourself, to where it's just like you just kind of found your niche, something that you enjoy. You're developing a skill, a practical skill that you can, you know, obviously monetize in a million different ways. Fast forward, now you're constructing custom gun dog boxes. So, like you, you obviously have the skill set and the know how to do it. What caused you one day to just be like, you know what, I want to make my own gun dog box?
0: I think it's honestly like you see somebody else do something or you see a company, you know, if you're a carpenter, you see a, somebody building cabinets and you just say, I could do that. I, I would love to try that. And that's where it originally just started is, you know, as you're getting into bird dogs, you see these rigs that have these cool boxes. And uh, it was like, heck, I'd love to just take a chance at that and see, uh, see if I can make that work. And uh That's kind of the origin of it. And to this day, it's still just like trial and error of, okay, let's try doing it this way. And okay, either that worked or it didn't. And if it didn't work, then how are we going to improve upon it? And, you know, with these boxes, there's so many parts. I mean, hundreds of parts realistically, and uh, it's just trying to massage and fine tune each one of those parts that it can be, you know, strong, durable, long lasting, easy to make. And then in the end, it has to be somewhat affordable, right?
1: And f- for the listeners that haven't seen your, your gun dog boxes, you know, after this, go check out your Instagram or website, there's links in the show notes, but for now, just picture, you know, everybody kind of understands the old, old school aluminum dog box is just a square one. You know, maybe there's a storage compartment on top with the, you know, the almost truck toolbox uh, gliders, so to speak, that it opens up and, and they were around forever right but you kind of took that and in my opinion kind of made a better hamster wheel like it's it's more streamlined it it has better venting it has better storage has a solar panel on top that feeds to the battery box which is what we're out here testing out and recording on right now to where we don't have to be plugged into you know a direct power source and uh, so it's kind of like you, you didn't really invent like a brand new thing. You just took elements from what's been around for decades and kind of made it your own thing. And then you really kind of put a stamp on it in the custom customizable features such as like the, the coating the powder coating and getting it to match whatever you want you can put you can have it match your vehicle you can put designs on it you can put your dogs on it you can put your business logo on it if you have a kennel whatever so They're really sharp and the fact that like, you know, somebody can reach out to you and and it's just like, hey, I need a two dog box or a three dog box or have a crazy idea that you haven't even constructed, but you can, you can make it work. If you have a crazy enough idea that you can communicate, you can put your head together with somebody and make them the exact box that they want.
0: And that was from the get go. Like the first bullet point was these have to be stronger than the conventional aluminum boxes. Um, And that's where those rotoformed, you know, those kennels have just crushed it. They've done such a great job with being super safe. Like if you get in a wreck and you have a gunner, you kind of have a little bit of peace of mind that your dog's probably going to be okay. And that's where we approached it first was, okay, we're going to build essentially a roll cage um, like you'd see in a Jeep or, you know, an off-road buggy. Like we're going to build this tube frame and then the skins just go on afterwards and that obviously has its pros and cons and unique challenges and and things like that but that was the first and foremost like it has to be safe you know it has to make sure that if you're putting your dog in there that if you get in a wreck or you know if you wanted to you know roll a four-wheeler up on top of it and park it up there that it could it could handle that kind of weight and it would it would keep your dog safe
1: and you were telling me uh last night you you guys have done some some initial testing, you know, yet you, you guys haven't like gone in and done some like exponential testing but so far y'all have had some really good results with like the stackability test and how much weight it can can hold. And that's a good point to bring up because those old aluminum dog boxes, it was just like they were just kind of foreign. I remember one of my first dog boxes I had somebody just made in their garage out of like an old interstate sign, that aluminum sign. And they just kind of crimped it and pop riveted it and put it together. And it, would it hold a dog? Yeah. But thinking back on it now, it's like that sucker would have gotten crushed in five seconds if, if somebody would have just flicked it. But with these things, these Things are sturdy, so how much weight did you say that you guys have found out initially? Like that doesn't really have a problem or struggle with.
0: Yeah, yeah so this was a year or two ago, and that was multiple revisions ago. When our frames, the uh, our frames are pretty robust now. We have a whole bunch of bracing, and uh, most of that is to to benefit us on the back end like when we're putting stuff together so we've had bigger tubing put in so that we can attach handles and bigger tubing put in so that we can attach different panels and uh handles and all different stuff like that but the original one where it was a really bare bones frame they did some um we sent it to a friend who has uh their family does crash test rating for Polaris and Toyota and people like that. And so he just did a quick run through their um, simulation. And I want to say it was like 1200 pounds before the frame would even start to deflect. And then, which that's a tremendous amount of weight. I mean, that's both of my giant fab tables stacked on top of each other. But then, then you add all the the skins, all the, you know, panels and you rivet them all to the frame and that in and of itself, so much more stronger. It's like when you build a stick frame house, you frame it all out, and while that in and of itself is pretty strong, you go back through and you put all the siding on it, all the the sheeting, and that's what makes it just exponentially stronger.
1: And then, I mean, it's like, so you have the strength, you have the safety, which was lacking in some of the older school aluminum dog boxes, which I think played a, a pivotal part of why people kind of steered away from them for the most part, is they started seeing they got crushed, and to your point, the roto-molded kennels came on the market, and and you know they're they're safe and they, and they were affordable, especially if you just had one one dog, maybe two. But then you start getting into where you have two, three, four dogs. It's like, man like, I can't have a truck full of gunners. I mean, you could, you know, I've been been rocking that for up until now. Right. And, and it it was fine, but I'm excited for this because it's, it simplifies the setup. It's, it's in the truck, you have your storage, you have your lighting. And that's something we didn't even touch on. Like you have lighting rigged up all over this thing. Like it's so sharp to where not only do you have lighting so that you can see and access your storage, you have lighting in the, in the actual boxes so you can see the dogs if you need to maybe you're cleaning up a mess or a puppy mess or something one night but you also have it to where it hooks up to your truck and so your running lights your brake lights your blinkers all of that works congruently with your truck and then that's just added even more added safety features driving down the road which you know when you're traveling and uh cross-country chasing birds, you're very often traveling uh, at night. So it's just another added feature that you can tell that you're you're truly putting thought into this and trying to figure out features that the actual dog person would enjoy outside of just, will it hold my dog? And can I store my gun and ammo on top of it?
0: And we we, we have a little bit of an uphill fight. There, there are companies that currently make, most of them are stainless, stainless steel, that they make these um, dog boxes. And there's some companies that make some just flat out phenomenal boxes. Um, the big downside to them is it's stainless and it's really heavy. Um, and that's where we kind of took a different approach: is we need to play catch up, and we need to play catch up fast um, to catch up to their, you know, their client base and you know their quality. Um, and one of the things that we were able to do different is make it out of aluminum because mine comes in and out of my box or out of my truck very regularly. I still have a full-time gig of fabrication and so if i need to go pick up steel and i have my dog box in the back you know i need to be able to just grab one of the guys at the shop and just yank the box out and go grab some steel and then come back and then you know at the end of the day if i'm gonna go hunt that night then i have one of the guys help me throw it back in and you know we're off to the races and you don't have to rewire it to your truck and run wires up underneath the hood or into the cab or anything like that it was all the idea of this can come in and out really quick and it's kind of a self-contained unit it has its own power its own light yeah if you want to run like the trailer lights set up then yeah you got to plug that into the truck but that takes 30 seconds you know that's no time at all but that was kind of our ideas you know there's already companies that make just phenomenal boxes but they're they really are more of a permanent fixture or way more of an ordeal to get in and out and it's not as light or fast
1: and it's like once you get it in there that's that's like your setup there's not really playing around I mean to your point I have a three-hole dog box now and me and you got it in the truck by ourselves situated, tied down, it's not a big deal. I mean, yeah, I'm not I'm not yanking that out by myself, not without, you know, the tractor forks or something like that. But if you just have it Have another buddy with you. You you can rip it out of your truck very easily. It's not not tied down, and it's like if I want to move it in the truck, move it further in. Like you can you can play with it, figure out exactly what works for you. And then like I said, like I want to reiterate, like you said, there's some catch up, but this is where people listening to this comes in to where if you're interested in a in a product such as this they may look at your website and they'll see like okay here's like the general mold the foundation so to speak stuff that you've done in the past but you can do a completely customizable thing so if somebody if you're sitting there and you're like you're you're kind of like me to where there's really no perfect product out there and you're always like well what if what if what if what if they can contact you and they can spitball these ideas to you and you can come up with a game plan and be like, you know what? That's a great idea. Or you can tell them, well, this won't work because of X. And and but you guys can work together to get your exact setup the exact way that you want. And that that kind of that's what brought me and you together is like look i want a dog box but the solar capability with the storage uh the battery storage and the power source that was a big thing for me because you know you can see i got a bunch of crap i travel with right now and it's it's gonna come in handy if i'm out on the prairie to just be able to pull up this podcast and plug it into the gun dog box and record a podcast
0: yeah this is this is super fun that you know We're up here in the mountains, you know, we got no cell service and we're doing a podcast and we're all running off the box.
1: I mean, and you know, I've, I've had an external battery pack for a while and I've used that before but that sucker's always dying it, it never works when you need it this it's like like you said that this has the capability to where you can run an additional solar panel and it's all running into what what is this the Yeti uh Go Zero what's it called again
0: yeah so the brand that we use and I don't think that it's necessarily like the flat out the best battery and, and solar, but they integrate really well and they're really robust and they're designed for outdoor use. So it's it's a great, great product, um, but they're just really easy and seamless. And the one that we have in yours is called the Yeti 500. So it's a 500 amp hour battery bank. It has two 110 outlets. It's got a 12 volt outlet. It's got a bunch of miscellaneous USB and micro USB ports, and then it just gets tied into the solar panel. So, you know, heaven forbid you, you run this battery completely dead, you know, as soon as we get out of this shaded area, the solar panel is just going to start charging this this battery back up. So, and uh, that really is kind of the point the the really fun part of of building these is getting to know the client, and saying, okay, what is your use case? And yeah, maybe maybe your use case you don't want a battery and solar panel. Maybe your budget doesn't allow it, or maybe you're going to be under a topper, and that obviously just doesn't make any sense. Or what color do you want to do it? And I feel like that's that's easy stuff that makes the client feel more involved and like this is their product where some of the other companies, it's like this is the one thing that we do. It's But that is the fun part of, of that is like cool you want to do some wild color or like a textured finish or
1: and I mean you've done some pretty cool custom theme boxes you know pheasant fest you had the the big on box that, that you've done for people and and I I think I told you when we were kind of talking about options for me you know we we kind of tossed around the idea of doing a GDIY theme box or something and I think I told you I'm like you know I'm kind of a little more low-key I like the kind of cleaner just sleeker look and we just went with the kind of gray and black look you know to match the truck and and it, i mean they look just sharp i mean even the custom made ones the onyx one with the like the 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 vinyl wrap and yeah it's like it's hard to
0: miss it's yeah it's like, like they, you could they, do they it, really
1: stand out yeah
0: you could do a bright pink and it would probably still look really cool
1: <laughs> but it you know it's it, again it's like if you can dream it you you can pretty much do it and then like you said you're you're essentially just you're doing this as a passion project. You you have your fabrication company. You're building these. It's it's a business in of itself, essentially but you're trying to play catch up with other companies that have been out there for much longer and they kind of already have their defined product. And so this is where other ideas and new ideas can kind of really help you get going to where just talking to listeners, if somebody wants to just kind of feel it out, see what something might cost and and what kind of design features and stuff they can integrate within your system, this is where like, this is the fun part to where you can really kind of make this dog box special like you said you've you've had so many different iterations and additions to this and hearing what your first boxes were like compared to now just in the waterproofing feature alone and the lighting it's like okay you're all, you're already making giant leaps I mean just the fact that I didn't even know about the special uh, bracket within the dog box for the govy thermometers that we talk about on the podcast all the time the Bluetooth thermometers I'm sitting here about to rig it up put like some Duralock or something on it to hang it up like i did my gunners and you're like oh no i put a b- special bracket right here for it and you just slide it in and i'm like this is freaking brilliant
0: <laughs> and uh that again that's it's like low-hanging fruit like that bracket costs whatever 15 bucks and you're like well duh like of course we're gonna put it in every box because if it's a three-hole box you're out you know less than 100 bucks if you've got a two-hole box you're you know less than 50 bucks to put them in so it's it's a no-brainer to just put it in and if you never use it you never use it but if you do want it then it's already built
1: in. And and I think that's really what I appreciate getting to know you and how your thought process on this really operates is like you're not penny pinching. You, you know, you obviously have to make a buck or else it's it's not worth your time. But something like that to where such a an easy addition that's nice to wear, you know, it doesn't have to be a Govy. Like you, I'm sure anybody can rig up a whole bunch of different thermometer options that go in there. It's just the Govy is what I add and it fits in perfect. Not not too worried about like oh my god like add another fifteen dollars per box and you know that's gonna send the the cost going through the roof but you know I, I know there are other plenty of products out there to where it's just like if you just made this one small adjustment no, we can't do that because it's it's mass produced right it's it's line produced so the customizable features just aren't realistically an option within the, those those systems. And here it's just like you're gonna come up with an idea such as that and it may not be appealing to everybody, but like me, I'm just like, Oh, the it it holds my Govey system. That's freaking awesome and it's just that little small detail. And I hope we don't
0: get to the I hope we don't get big enough where we lose that sense of I don't know, like like you were saying, a lot of these bigger companies, they can't afford to Make small changes, or to make it customized, or to make it personalized, because they mass produce them at such a quantity. And I, I hope we don't lose that that uh, essence of our company. Where if somebody were to call up and say, "I love everything about this. I'm ordering one, but I is there any chance we could do this tweak?" You know, I don't ever want to be the guy that's like, "Nope, sorry." You know, we can't afford to do that because it would, you know, be tens of thousands of dollars in retooling. And, you know, it's obviously going to cost a little bit more, even if it's changing it to be more simple. We have to go back through and, you know, make sure that none of the files, you know, clash with each other or something doesn't interfere with something else. But, you know, I hope we never lose that where it's um, that's the fun part is, is making everything personalized. And like this is your box. This is this is how you wanted it set up. That's that's the fun part.
1: And that's important for people to keep in mind is like you're small enough to where you can still be personable and customize things. But with that comes the price tag. Because you're not the big company, because you're not doing mass production, uh, it's, you know, everything is a pro con, right? Like you can keep it personable for the individual customer, but you know, the price tag is gonna reflect that. And so, but like you said, at the very start of this, it was important for you to keep it, you know, affordable for people or else, you know, nobody's really gonna buy it. And so, you know, to your point, you know, I've, I've been bouncing ideas off of you for for weeks now of like, man, if we could do this, we could do this, we could add that, we could add that. And, you know, I'm excited because I know what we're doing, this this dog box is kind of the beginning and me, and you've already been talking about a lot cool and more exciting things that hopefully we can talk about in the future when, when it actually comes to fruition. But it's, I guess what I'm getting at is if you're listening to this, you're intrigued, uh, dream bigger. dream bigger and call ben
0: (laughs) yeah yeah and that is one feature that i like being this small is like people have my cell phone number like they'll text me they'll call me they'll you know 10 o'clock at night i might not respond but (laughs) you're you're welcome to text me that late you're welcome to you know you can have my personal number and you know if you have issues or if you have questions or just that's the fun part is getting to know everybody and how can we make this yours
1: Well, I'm excited to see what we kind of come up with and what feedback you get from listeners if they kind of come up with some cool ideas. But it is mid-September right now. You do have your second dog at the house now. What are some of the big hunting trips and plans and stuff that you want to get into this season before we wrap this up
0: yeah man this whole September got turned upside down we had a whole bunch of stuff planned and then just the regular work kind of took over but uh, the big one I, we're doing North Dakota and that's here in just a couple of weeks that'll be just super fun just to get out and unplug for a little bit um, but after that it's it's probably just gonna be a lot of local stuff and uh, maybe the oddball, you know, jump across the border to a different state real quick for a quick weekend hunt. But yeah, like I was saying earlier, I mean, we could hunt Utah every weekend and, you know, never run out of new places to hunt. So um, yeah, this year, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but just by... Just by other life choices, with work taking over, and you know, you got to do take care of stuff like that. But we'll just be local for the most part this year.
1: Well, I appreciate you having us down. I know, like you said, kind of your, your day work uh, got in the way of us shooting up yeah. to Idaho here in a couple of days. But uh, I, I'm I'm excited to you know get used to this new setup with the gun dog box. I think it looks great, and I can't wait to kind of see some of these different personable new stuff, new ideas that we're kind of coming coming up with and and uh, uh, again anybody listening to this they want to know check the show notes there'll be a link to his Instagram as well as website and just hit him up you know just give him your crazy ideas and and he'll tell you if it's doable or not that's the fun part yeah well Ben I appreciate it everybody stay tuned for the outro and uh Ben we'll we'll circle back and revisit with you soon yeah seriously I appreciate you Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying I swear I hit that bird well good news maybe It might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out uplandguncompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch rather than standing there still saying, I couldn't have missed that bird.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All
1: right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this episode presented by Standing Stone Supply, Onyx Hunt, DT Systems, Upland Gun Company, as well as Final Rise. Uh, Getting to know Ben Proctor on this little quick road trip through Utah on the way up to Idaho was pretty cool. Ben's one of those guys that just as soon as you meet him he's just uh down to earth easy to talk to you we obviously have some shared interests and and passions and and uh what he does in his shop is really impressive and unique and uh if you have any interest in in looking at a setup or a custom dog box that he does then by all means reach out to him you know I've I've actually been getting a few questions from listeners and followers especially on social media as I kinda of post a few pictures uh, on the current trip that I'm on I, the the box has been kinda of shown off on the tailgate pictures here and there and I've had a few people reach out and asking if he does you know does this feature or that feature or how much is cost and, and and I tell them uh, just just reach out you know hit up Ben at uh, B Be pro and and it, the the reason why is obviously as you heard in this is like you can kind of make each box unique in of itself you know it's it, each one is completely different which is going to change the specs and the price and all that stuff so it depends uh and and it varies greatly depending on what you're actually want out of your, out of your setup but i can tell you in my setup just i've been using it for I don't know, a little over a month now since since I recorded this and 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 got the box, and so I've kind of really kind of got to test it out and see what I enjoy about it, and and uh, the storage box on top has just been huge. It's just been I've been able to store everything that I need for my hunting and and dog setup. A lot more convenient, you know. I've got uh, some DIY DIY drawer boxes, and uh, that the that the current dog box sits on top of, and I've always kept my stuff in there, and then you know inside the cab of the truck. But just having it in one location that you can lock it up and just open it up and grab it, you know, you you can kind of set it up to where everything has its own place, and and uh, just the uh, the power with the external battery box, the solar. Uh, power, the solar panel that goes to the Yeti power box has been awesome to where I've actually recorded a few podcasts at this point, which you guys will hear in the coming weeks. I'm excited to share some episodes with you that I've been recording with some guys around here at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp here in Minnesota. But also just the fact that I have my collar set up and like GoPro and battery and stuff like that set up in the battery box to where I get back to the truck. I just open it up and and hook it up so every time i'm back to the truck it takes five seconds for me to to charge those collars up which if anybody's been on long road trips and hunting trips uh you know that they can kind of relate to the fact that sometimes you uh it can be a pain to keep your electronics charged up taking them inside the the cabin or the house and you know back to the truck and then you leave them in the truck when it gets too cold one night and they just don't work right the next day there's there's always kind of like little annoying annoying tendencies or or uh, challenges through uh through hunting trips and just keeping your your handheld and and your e-collars uh charged up can you know it it can be a lot more efficient and that's something that this setup has afforded me the opportunity to do is just really get back to the truck open the panel hook it up and you don't have to worry about it they're fully charged come the next run even if you're just changing spots it's uh, just takes two seconds so that's been really nice and so uh yeah, you know, reach out to Ben if you have any questions or suggestions or you want to find out if he can do X, Y, or Z. Uh, from, from my impression, it sounds like he can pretty much do anything you can dream of. It's just going to be a matter of how much and how long and, and stuff like that. Enjoy getting to know Ben. I'm still, as I just mentioned, I'm still here in Minnesota. At the time that this comes out, I'll be in Wisconsin, but I'm uh, at the time of recording this, I'm actually my last day at Pine Ridge. Uh, unfortunately, not hunting anymore i got to take a kind of a camp day and kind of clean up some of my gear and 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 the camper and stuff like that but also i have to run into town to the vet uh we got something going on with one of quinn's eyes you know i don't know if she scratched it running through the woods or something stuck up in there but there's a there's a few things that i don't like to take risk on and and the eye is is one of them so i'm going to go in there and and see what's what on that but i tell you what this is uh this is a special place. You know, it's, uh, you hear about it on other podcasts. You see it on social media. You you've heard stories about it. It's uh it's worth checking out if you have any interest in in coming up to the Northwoods country and and grouse country in general. Uh, it, it's worth a, a swing through and meeting the people and kind of seeing the setup. It is a uh, it is a very unique place of which you know there are a few episodes that uh, again I recorded and and you'll hear more about that in weeks to come. But uh, the grouse hunting this year has just been unreal you know you we I've heard bird reports prior to coming up and then getting up here and seeing that you know it was true and just how many birds are a- actually out there on the landscape it's it's one of those years that if you have a young dog that you're trying to break into grouse hunting get up to the Northwoods uh, not not just Minnesota in general but it just seems like all, all the Northwood states with grouse populations are uh, having pretty good years and so if you have a young dog that you really just need those bird contacts get them out out and uh I've really had the had the privilege and, and pleasure of watching Quinn develop. Uh, we've gotten to shoot numerous birds over numerous points with retrieves. Uh, yesterday, I took out Lucy and Rachel, and I ran them as a brace, which I don't do very often. But I wanted to, you know, put them down. It's it's been something for a few years. I've been trying to get a rough grouse shot over a point and a back, and then a retrieve, essentially an entire clean sequence. Out of both of them, just for the heck of it. I've done it a, numerous times on woodcock and a bunch of quail species and sharptails. But for whatever reason, it, with the cover and just the challenge and the elusiveness of the rough grouse in the woods, I have never been able to actually seal the deal with them and yesterday I actually got to do it twice Uh, Rachel went on point Lucy back flush shot Lucy gets the a brings it back to me and uh, I got to do it twice and then they did it a third time on a woodcock for the heck of it and so it was uh, one of the more enjoyable and probably most memorable uh, brace work I've done with both of them so that that walk really meant a lot but I tell you what, you know, it's hard to beat when you see the the puppy light bulb coming on. And that's what I've gotten to witness with Quinn, where every time we've gone out, it's just like things are clicking and, and things are making sense. She's hitting objectives. She's ranging. She's checking in a lot better. She's uh, we it's. It's interesting when you, because you're getting to know a young dog in their first year of hunting. So just like she's learning how to hunt, I'm having to learn how to hunt with her and how to, you know, prioritize what I'm going to train with her in the off season and stuff. And and right now, uh, I can say that I have all the confidence in the world for her to handle a grouse based on scent. The question uh, gets it, it gets a little murky when she can see the bird. So that is something i know when hunting season wraps up or even maybe i get a chance to work on some things during hunting season when i get back home is uh working on her with sight pointing and just staying steady through the stimulus of a running bird that's going to be a priority for her but if she smells it and that bird is not running and she can't put eyes on it it's uh I, she's giving me some great looks and great opportunities uh to to bag some birds and uh she's doing everything that I hope she would and uh one of the big reasons why I decided to go with a setter on this uh this new puppy so I don't know i'm sure you guys are going to hear a little bit more about some uh grouse stories and and stories from this trip overall here uh, in some future episodes so i won't bore you guys too much longer i have been getting uh, a lot of comments and feedback on some youtube videos here lately that i've had up from everything from the rough grouse hunting video that i did with nick larson last year that's getting a lot of play this time of year i guess you know, it being October, people uh, are, are kind of circling back and watching that. So if you haven't seen that and, and you want to know how to hunt rough grouse, if you are coming up to the Northwoods, then uh, go check that out on our YouTube channel. You can hit the link in the show notes or just Google uh, or search Gun it yourself on YouTube. But also uh, getting a, quite a bit more feedback here recently on the gun fitting video that I did with Del Whitman, uh, walking you through the whole gun fitting process and just some basic tutorial and and. Uh, just 101 stuff when it comes to shooting form and, and mounts and stuff like that so if you have any des- interest or desire to check those out again go check out our YouTube channel uh, that'll help us out a lot hit, hit follow or subscribe whatever it's called on YouTube hit that while you're there and I, I'd appreciate it and then uh, if you don't mind share it with a friend that goes a long way so with that being said I'm going to wrap this up I'm going to go ahead and jump in the truck and head on into town and, and hopefully the the vet has nothing to say about Quinn's eye other than you know maybe she just got poked in the eye and and it is what it is it it happens it's bird dog stuff but i just want to go do a a quick sanity check make sure it's nothing more important but with that being said hope you guys are getting out and having fun and uh, being safe and uh, we'll check back here soon with another episode of gdly thanks guys